Well, thank you, Mr. Randy. Appreciate that. Hello, Church at the Red Door. Are you ready to do this? I mean, we are uh, halfway, almost halfway through December. Can you believe it? And our final month in 2020, I'm ready for 2020 to be behind us. I'm ready to, uh, hopefully this vaccine will take hold and we'll be, uh, we'll really be able to start gathering. I'm hoping certainly by the fall of 2021, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe late spring, uh, maybe a little optimistic based on um, everything that we understand, but uh, our hope is that we will be gathering soon. But again, and I've said this before, I'll continue to sing the praises of uh, our AV team who has consistently been upping their game, I think, uh, in terms of bringing this to you online. So I uh, hope you're ready to roll this morning. I mean, I'm excited about this. I, many of you know uh, our topic this morning because I've actually taught on it through over the last 20 years any number of times as it relates to the amazing John the Baptist. It's kind of where we find ourselves as we progress through this Gospel of Luke and uh, he's an extraordinary figure. In fact, as we'll see this morning, Jesus said, up until now, John is the greatest among all men. I mean, that is an amazing statement. We're going to ask a few questions this morning. Why was he so great? What was it about John? And yet, then Jesus went on to say, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Again, I've touched on this any number of times, but we do find it emerge in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to look at it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to John chapter 3. We're going to start here in verse 2. John chapter 3, verse 2. If you'll remember, we left, we last left John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb, her formerly barren womb. And we did a whole Sunday morning on a barren womb and how God loves to take something that's dead and bring it to life and then produce fruit out of it. And that's where we last left John. John was, in fact, leaping when he heard Mary's voice, or Elizabeth heard Mary's voice. John leapt within uh, Elizabeth's womb. And why? Because John's whole life, this was going to be this morning, one of the things that makes John so amazing is his whole life is centered around, centered around the coming Messiah, centered around Jesus. Did he fully understand everything about Jesus? No, and we'll see that a little bit this morning as well. But his whole life was centered on Jesus. And again, that's where we're going to pick up the text here. So, John uh, Luke, excuse me, Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, designating him then as a prophet. The son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? He had already been dedicated as a Nazarite. Uh, John was now living uh, a very secluded life and was probably having some extraordinary uh, interaction and training from the creator of the universe himself. So John was found in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So now this is a unique ministry he has it's a baptism of repentance. It's not necessarily salvation yet. It is a baptism of repentance. Okay, that's important. Just chronicle that in your mind. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and now again here, we have a declaration that it's something that had been written good 700 years in advance of John the Baptist, Isaiah 40, 
was specifically written in the direction of and prophetic of John the Baptist. So John is a fulfillment of a prophecy that has been written hundreds of years ago. And it's powerful. And then it goes on to say, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. In other words, God knew he was going to separate a man for himself. He's going to bring something out of a barren womb, uh, something that was dead, uh, uh, Elizabeth's womb was going to bring forth something that was dedicated to himself. We kind of see that over and over in Scripture from the barren womb. And and then he was going to live in the wilderness. So Isaiah was seeing that again 700 years in advance. Make ready, important to understand, make ready the way of the Lord. John's ministry was a readying ministry, a preparedness ministry, something that was forerunning Jesus, a forerunning ministry. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight. The rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, this is important because we're going to have to ask the question, is this just a history lesson again this morning? Or is there an application for you and me in the 21st century? Now, do you want the world to see the salvation of God? And we know now that the salvation is Jesus, a relationship with God's Son, the Son of Man, and God as we looked at last week. That is the salvation of the world. Do you want the world? Who are those in your life, friends, family, others, that you want to see the salvation? We're going to learn something instructive from John the Baptist this morning. In fact, we're going to go even further back based on some of the words we're going to read next, and we're going to get a picture of this. So verse 7 goes on to say, And he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Great way to preach the gospel, right? You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? So what is he talking about? He's talking about an ultimate wrath that will be coming down the road and that you are, you folks are vipers. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, there is a visible action in repentance. It's not just kind of a mental ascent. There is a something that happens in the seen realm when repentance happens. You can just see it. And do not begin to say to yourselves, again, he's speaking to the Jewish community here, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, don't rely on your, for them it was their religious pedigree, their their ancestral history. Don't rely on anything other than what I'm about to tell you. You're going to have to rely on the coming one, the coming Messiah, the salvation of God. What are you relying on this morning? Or those that you're wanting to talk to about the gospel, what might they be relying on? You're going to have to confront those, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verse 10, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, What then shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So there is a there is a response in repentance. It's not just, okay, I repent. There's always an accompanying response. You see this over and over in Scripture, as a matter of fact. 
you see it, uh, those that were the first to receive Jesus uh, and accept him. You see uh, the Roman centurion that was helping them build their synagogue. You see um, Cornelius, who was the first, uh, one of the first Gentile converts. And what was he doing? He was giving alms to the Jewish people. Those are men who already were responding a reaction to the, the, the sin that they were seeing in their own lives. They saw the deficit between themselves and God, knew they needed to turn around, and some of the first actions that they uh, were involved with was a giving. And we see that in all this that John is suggesting. So first of all, he says, share. And then some of the tax collectors, verse 12, came to be baptized. What shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you've been ordered to. I'm asking you essentially to distance yourself from the seen realm. Your whole world revolves around stealing from others, you tax collectors. You're not only taking it for Rome, but you're padding your pockets as well. Don't take any more than you've been ordered to collect. And then some soldiers were questioning him, saying, well, what about us? What shall we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, but be content with your wages. In other words, don't use your power. Step back from the authority that you've been given to manipulate and coerce, uh, but pad your own life in this scene realm. All of those things were activities of repentance, things that accompanied Repentance. I have observed that over and over in my life. When I see a man or a woman begin to seek to, to bring some kind of activity of repentance in their life, something changes in the seen realm, I know that person may not be far off from the kingdom of heaven. They are already. Now, the only thing that satisfies God is the blood of Jesus. Let's be clear. But there are acts of repentance there are activities in the scene realm that oftentimes accompany a true repentance. Maybe just someone walking away from their uh, a job that was uh, absolutely not in, it was directly in conflict with the kingdom of God and the ethos of the kingdom, or uh, walking away from an addiction, or, or or maybe just beginning to start seeking a community. I mean, you can see all kinds of activities that accompany re- true repentance. I mean, it is, in other words, a visible activity. Repentance is not just a mental activity. It becomes necessarily then a seen realm, visible activity. There are things that accompany repentance. So that's what John was preaching. Now what I want to do is I want to go back. Not only was there a direct prophecy about this amazing John the Baptist in Isaiah, there was a secondary prophecy given in the very final book written before this quiet period between Old Testament and New Testament by Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, go to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before, before what? The coming great and terrible day of the Lord. This is the very last words that we have before we get this explosion of activity uh, in the announcement to Mary and Elizabeth that they're going to have these children, both Jesus and John the Baptist. This long, quiet period. A lot of things were happening historically but in terms of the prophetic writing, Malachi being the last, and then these are his last words before he closes 
his prophetic picture. He says, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there are a couple of things that he is outlining, what he's envisioning, Malachi. Number one, he's seen the prophet Elijah returning to the earth before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, why is it great and terrible? For some, it's going to be great. Those who have embraced God's plan of redemption. For others, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be a day of darkness and judgment and separation from their creator for all of eternity. This is not going to be a pretty picture for some, and it's going to be the long-awaited moment for uh, those that have been made right or righteous in this Messiah figure. That's what Malachi is seeing. There's going to be a restoration, especially among the Jewish people, to back to their forefathers. This is not just about children and fathers getting along. This is a picture of, of Jews now not just relating to or counting on their ancestral history, but actually returning to the ways of their forefathers, Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob and many others, King David, and their hearts after this true, authentic, faith-filled life and walk with the creator of the universe. That's what this Elijah figure is going to do. That's what Malachi has seen. And then finally, if this doesn't occur, he's very clear. If there's not a reconciliation back to the ways of the forefathers, which was a faith-driven life, an obedient lifestyle, hearing the voice and walking in it, which is what they all walked in, and as a result were declared righteous through their faith, if, that didn't, if that's not going to happen, then there's going to be a certain cursedness that's going to rule over the entire nation. And let me tell you something, that's also true with us. Without the ministry of Elijah, what happens? Life is a mess. Without this Elijah figure, life is a mess. So now that brings the question, what was the ministry of this Elijah figure? And did it have any correspondence to the actual ministry of Elijah itself? And the answer to that is yes. Now you've got to go back and remember that John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, had prophesied. If you'll remember when we covered this in Luke chapter 1, I want to take you back real quickly and have you look at that. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner. So it is a forerunning ministry before him. And I remember what Zacharias had prophesied. What? In the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, this is actually not Zacharias making this prophecy. It's an angel prophesying to Zacharias. But remember, he will do what? Move in the spirit and power of Elijah. So now we have to say, is this Elijah figure an actual resurrected Elijah? Or is this someone moving in the spirit and power similar to Elijah? The same spirit that motivated Elijah will be in this Elijah-like figure. I think the latter is true. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make people prepared, what? Prepared for the Lord. So it's a ministry of preparation. So is it going to be a resurrected Elijah? Well, it seems to be that the angel is saying to Zacharias, no, it's not going to be a resurrected Elijah. It's going to be what? It's going to be someone moving in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
Malachi was seeing Elijah, possibly in a vision or the words, a picture, if he was trying to describe a word picture. But now we're beginning to get a sense that it may not be actually a resurrected Elijah. So when John was asked whether or not he was Elijah, in John chapter 1, we don't get this in the Lukean account, but we get it in the John, John's account, they asked John the Baptist, what then, are you Elijah? And John very clearly said, I am not. Are you the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? And he said, no, I'm not that prophet either. That would have been referring to Jesus specifically. So they were perplexed. Who is this John the Baptist figure? But, now this is important, Jesus was very definitive about saying, no, John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10 through 13. Now hang on there. I know there's a, kind of a lot of blocking and tackling here, but this is going to come home very powerfully in terms of how we are to apply this in the 21st century. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10 through 13. And his disciples asked him, Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why? Because they knew the prophecy of Malachi. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming, Jesus is saying, and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him. Now this is well after John has now already been beheaded at the request of Herodias but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. John and Jesus are gonna do something that's gonna provoke the ire of others, in this case the religious Jews, to the point that they're gonna take their, both of their lives. Then the disciples understood that he had what? Spoken to them about John the Baptist. So. Was John Elijah? Jesus says yes. John says no. Well, both are correct. How so? Well, no. John the Baptist is John the Baptist. He's a separate soul, has a different heart and conscience and body. It's not a resurrected Elijah. But in terms of what Malachi was prophesying, John fit the bill. John was the Elijah that Malachi had prophesied. Jesus made it very, very clear. One thing we need to understand is that when you use the ministry of preparation in somebody's heart, it's going to provoke exactly what happened in both Jesus' life and John the Baptist's life and Elijah's life. Some are going to repent and recognize and others are going to reject and persecute. And you will suffer in some way, whether it's socially being ostracized or whatever it is, or in many places in the world, those who are preparing the way for people to hear about the Messiah will ultimately suffer, and many are suffering today, even at the loss of their own life. It's part of telling the gospel. So this is actually pretty amazing. I mean, the angel was letting Zacharias know that what? that his son was not only going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, but also the prophecy, again, of Malachi. It wasn't going to be a resurrected Elijah. No way. But what? It was going to be the greatest prophet to date and moving in, again, the same spirit as Elijah. So what kind of ministry, we have to go back, what kind of spirit and ministry did Elijah move in? That's the question because we're going to get a corresponding thing with John. If he's moving in the spirit of Elijah, what was Elijah like? 
And then can we adopt some of these same characteristics in preparing the way for our friends, family, business associates, community, the valley here? Can we prepare in the same way? So number one, uh, I'm going to just give you some attributes of Elijah that John clearly possessed. And then we have to ask ourselves this morning, are those also attributes that, that we should possess? Number one, well, Elijah was courageous. How so? Well, 1 Kings chapter 17, if you know the story, he had to confront Ahab, a wicked king. The Bible was very clear. To that point, Ahab was even more wicked than his four running kings that were before him. And he was married to an incredibly wicked, and in fact, a woman that we still use as kind of a, a way to describe deceit and treachery and all kinds of things, Jezebel. But 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah was pretty courageous. Why? Verse 1 says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to this wicked king Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. In other words, I'm confronting you. I stand before the Lord and you are distant and far away from him. Surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now you can talk about courageous. Ahab wanted to wipe him out. He had to actually go into hiding and that's exactly what he did. The Lord led him to cross back over and be fed by ravens beside the brook Kerith. And, and that's what he did until the Lord again gave him instructions. Very courageous action on behalf of Elijah. Now, was John the Baptist courageous? Absolutely. Same thing. Both were being reared in the wilderness. Both came in and then confronted wicked kings. It's exactly what John was beheaded for. He confronted a king. Why? Because he was sleeping with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. They were living together, and John confronted them on that. Very courageous, just like the spirit of Elijah. Number two, he was full of faith, and again, corresponding obedience to go along with that. As he, again, isolated in the wilderness. First Kings 17, if you go on, the word of the Lord came, go away from here and turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook, which is east of the Jordan, carry it shall be so that you will drink of the brook. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. So Elijah did. John also moved away in the wilderness. Well, how am I, how am I going to live? Look, I've, I've been challenged in my own heart as I began to enter ministry. I was like, well, how am I ever going to make, you know, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to provide for my family? Lord, I, I don't know how this is going to work. And in many ways, I was confronted with having to adopt the spirit of Elijah and John the Baptist, the same kind of uh, obedient spirit to say, look, don't worry about how you'll be provided for. I will provide for you, but it's going to be in the future. Just do what I tell you to do. Laura and I have seen over and over provision. Things come at the exact moment that we need them. Even things we didn't need, God provided, at least from our perspective. He has been so there at every moment along the way. We've had, we have story after story after story. We needed something, something came, and it was provided. 
I think back of medical issues uh, with our daughter and how they were provided for and just one thing after another, after another, after another. You know, Tatum, when she was really young, had this surgery that she needed and God just orchestrated events and I my calendar be set and we'd need some money and a guy would say, hey, I want to come and take some lessons and overpay me and come at the exact dates that we had open. I mean, just time after time after time, the ravens provided, the brook didn't dry up, and then when the brook dried up, we knew it was time to move to the next season and that's exactly what we see with Elijah, and it's exactly what we see in John the Baptist, and it was exactly what we see with the ministry of Jesus himself. He was provided for by some women who actually provided for his ministry that we get in the New Testament. How's all this going to work, Jesus would ask. How, how, how are we going to be provided for in the disciples? Don't worry about it. Just do what I tell you to do, and the provision will be at the place that I tell you to go, and that's consistent. It's amazing. And then uh, the son of the woman of Zarephath, as an example, was raised from the dead. He saw dead things come to life. Elijah was seeing dead things come to life. John the Baptist also was seen in a spiritual way, dead things come to life. The ministry of Jesus saw both spiritually and literally as he raised Jairus' daughter and others. Uh, Lazarus, Jesus was seen. All of them were moving in this power-packed Spirit. So the spirit that was in Elijah was in John. The John also then carried on, and then Jesus walked in that same spirit as well. He stood up against the false gods of his time. Elijah did. If you know the story, 1 Kings 18, let me read it for you quickly. He said, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. What's he talking about? He has gathered all the prophets of these foreign non-entities that they called gods together uh, at Mount Carmel. And uh, here they were, and he was praying. He said, okay, make yourself known. And then God showed up, the real God. Will you, the real God, stand up? And he sent fire and, you know, exploded this sacrifice. And then their God never showed up. And they cut themselves, and they danced, and they moaned, and they whined, and all this, and, and nothing, absolutely nothing. They said, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slew them there. Now, pretty harsh, you would say. John the Baptist, again, walking in some level of harshness, you brood of vipers. Jesus as well confronted the issues of his time. Look, folks, we, we want everybody to like us. I'm a person who likes people to like me. I don't like people to not like me. I don't like to confront. I'm not, by nature, a confrontational per person. Some people can maybe laugh at that that are in my life, but I really do. I like to mediate. I like to find middle ground, but there are things in life that there is no middle ground when it comes to this Bible. There are places in our culture that have to be confronted. Abortion or other issues of our day. We have to call a spade a spade. And that's what I also get from this amazing John the Baptist. He called it like it was even at the risk of his own life. And as a result, what happened? He angered a lot of people. 
Elijah angered a lot of people. Jesus angered a lot of people. We too will anger people if we care about them enough to confront them with a preparatory ministry that will lead them to recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Well, both had a conflict with an evil ruler's wife, first Jezebel and then Herodias. Very interesting that they both had this almost identical wilderness, come out of the wilderness, confront an evil king's wife, etc. Both of them did. Uh, it was, again, the spirit of the age that we see in Herodias. Hey, I'm gonna, uh, she was a sexual, it was a uh, liberty, you know? I, if I want to sleep with my brother's wife, stay out of the bedroom. You have no right to speak into that. And John confronted it. Elijah had confronted, again, Jezebel and her false gods that she had brought into the household. So you've got to recognize that when we confront the gods of our age, whatever it is, that we will get some we will get some reaction to that and oftentimes it's angry both interestingly enough had a midlife crisis both elijah had a midlife crisis right after this amazing victory he ran for the hills he was terrified he began to play the violin nobody's left but me nobody's left but me john the baptist had a similar midlife crisis in matthew 11 he 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 was in prison and he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one or should we expect another? He began to question, even though he was the very man who said, behold, the Lamb of God baptized Jesus uh, and saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove and heard the voice of the Father from heaven. And yet still he had a crisis. This is also, by the way, very encouraging for me. I've had some midlife crisis. I have. I've had some crisis of faith in my life at various points. I may have some again, I, I, but maybe less in depth and intensity. But I, I have some moments. It's kind of like, God, are you still there? Jesus, are you the one? Even though these men were powerful, faith-filled, obedient, amazing people who were concerned about and centered their lives around Jesus, there were moments when they just kind of failed. It's encouraging to me. Even the greatest, some of the greatest men and women of faith had moments where they were caught off balance, and I think that's what we see in both these men. Again, pretty harsh. Uh, John and Elijah were pretty harsh. Take you one case in the ministry of Elijah, pretty harsh, 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, they would sent a king had sent and they were trying to appease and figure this thing out and and they sent 50 of his uh, guards captains and verse 9 of second kings 1 says then the king sent him a captain of 50 with his 50 and went up to him that's elijah and behold he was sitting on the top of the hill and they said oh man of god the king says come down Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if, a, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire came down from heaven again, just like it had done with the sacrifice uh, before, from heaven and consumed he and his 50. And again, another sent the captain of 50 with his 50 and said to him, O man of God, come down. And Elijah replied, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Fire came down again from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And they finally sent another group and they were like, please, please don't send the fire. Again, I've preached on this before, but you can see why uh, 
Jesus' disciples said, wanted to call fire down from heaven, their spiritual hero, Elijah, the one that was going to come back and set all things right and the great and terrible day of the Lord. This figure was going to come back and be calling fire down from heaven, so they felt that they should call down fire from heaven. And yet we see a clear separation from the preparation in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha to a jump to a new message and rather than judgment, we're going to get grace. And this, again, is the ministry of Jesus. So John 2 was pretty harsh, you know. Um, as we saw earlier, John, hey, you brood of vipers, who told you to escape from the wrath to come? Again, we see him moving in, uh, again, the spirit of Elijah. Now, uh, verse 15 uh, of Luke, which is where we are, Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, remember verse 15, and the people were in a state of expectation. And prior to that, why? The crowds, because he was so tough and harsh, they were saying, what shall we do? So see, when there is something when we preach the gospel, when we tell the gospel, there has to be a moment of confrontation. If there's no moment of confrontation in the gospel with somebody's lifestyle, with somebody's separation from God, the fact that their heart is dark and they are cut off from God, if none of that is ever communicated, and again, how we do that, we can do that in a grace-filled way as best we can, often by telling our own testimony. But until we establish the use of the law, if you will, and John, was a, John the Baptist was a representative of the end of the law, until we establish that, people are never going to cry out, what shall we do? They won't be expecting the Messiah. They'll just feel bad about themselves. And I think that's essentially what you see in the ministry of John and Elijah. He, the ministry actually makes people what? Feel needy feel desperate, feel isolated. Did you ever think of the preaching of the gospel? It necessitates allowing people to see what the reality of their life is and maybe what the spirit of the age is that is dominating their psyche. Whether it be Roman soldiers and stealing and beating up people with their power, tax collectors taking too much, or whatever the case may be, You've got to separate and help people see that the spirit of the age, that they are part of that, and God's going to come back on the terrifying day of the Lord, and he's going to wipe that out. They don't want any part of that. And then lastly, both Elijah prepared the way for this new mercy-driven ministry of Elisha, who did twice the number of miracles. Again, I've taught on this extensively. And John was preparing the way for Jesus, and now we too are called through this ministry of courage and obedience, a willingness, a willingness to confront the gods of our time, a corresponding necessary harshness at time, even though we don't like to seem that way in confrontation. We have to do it. Jesus did it, and then at the beginning of the gospel, even after the new covenant came, even Peter did it, as we'll see in a minute. Why? Because one sets the stage for another, and this is important to see. Remember, each successive generation is dependent upon the generations that went for, before it 
and then are preparing also an ever-increasing building toward Jesus coming back. We all play a role. We all play a role, and we're dependent on that. So if we go back historically, these men of faith were preparing the way. And then they were, and then Malachi was preparing the way for John, and then John came preparing the way for Jesus. And now Jesus prepared the way for his disciples, and his disciples prepared the way for the early church, and the early church began to prepare, and eventually it gets to us. What are we recipients of? Where are people desperately dependent on us to have their lives have meaning to be perfected? There, many are depending on us and we will be a, build a foundation, and we will be dependent on people in the future. I've talked about this extensively, folks. If we can get church at the red door, we get our physical structure and the land and the building completed, uh, we are going to be dependent, long after many of us have left the earth to be with Jesus, we're dependent on people in the future completing that exercise of what we were called to do, so that the fullness of the kingdom can be brought in and all the fruit can be born. I may not see it. I know that I am, again, oftentimes laying foundations for others and building on the foundation that, foundations that were laid before me. So understanding this now, I, allow me to read Hebrews 11. I know we've looked at this a number of times over the last uh, year. It's such a power. It's the hall of faith, if you will. And then let's kind of look in and see how important it again, how important it is to prepare for the future. Okay, so Hebrews 11, 33 through 40. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So clearly, Elijah was one of the prophets who his whole life is going to be dependent on those who come after him. He's, he's a forerunner, if you will, of John the Baptist, a type of John the Baptist, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, all acts of amazing courage and faith, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured and they didn't accept their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings clearly in the life of Elijah. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Clearly, this is going to be a symbolic picture, ultimately, of even John the Baptist, living in caves in the wilderness and then eventually killed. All these things, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, let me just again say this. What, how did it finish? God provided what? Something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. 
Remember, you are walking into others' preparation, building on it, and then preparing the way for others in the future, all centered around lifting Jesus up. So this has a kind of a large-scale effect of preparedness for future generations to walk into, whether it be a building or just the gospel going forward or whatever it is, or uh, some kind of parachurch ministry or feeding the poor, whatever it is, it's building for the future generations coming behind us. And then on a personal level, it's also this ministry of John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah, if you will, preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus on an individual basis. So there's a collective reality and also how do we preach the gospel? Look, John's ministry did all these things. and is in, But in the end, his ministry made, again, people feel kind of guilty and needy which led to either their receptiveness or their wrath. And again, so there's a couple things we can learn as we begin to close this morning. A couple things we can learn from this. John clearly, John the Baptist, and the spirit of Elijah through him, we have to ask this question, what can we really learn from that? And then secondly, the question emerges, uh, how are these prophets being, uh, again, being made perfect? Well, they're being made perfect. Jesus' ministry was being made perfect. Think about this. The Apostle Paul's ministry is being made perfect. Those who have died over the last 2,000 years as missionaries in strange places, people who brought the gospel here to the West, I mean, there, there are all kinds of people that you know nothing about. Their ministries are being made perfect when we do exactly those things, when we're courageous, when we're full of faith and obedience, when we use our gift to see people brought back to life. So you see, we want the same spirit. We need the same spirit. When we're not afraid to confront the gods of our ages, uh, when we're willing to occasionally risk angering people. You know, it's always boggled my mind that uh, I've been, I've taught, I don't know, thousands and thousands of hours. I've been teaching this Bible for two decades, sometimes five, six, seven hours a week. And it still kind of is funny to me that some people will come up and say, well, I like that message or I didn't like that message. Well, you need to know something. There's some of my messages that may be good or bad. I'm not talking about that, but there are some that are very comforting, encouraging, and equipping, and, and boy, they invigorate and, and add faith, but there are some that are very confrontational. There are messages in this Bible that offend me, they, my sense of my life, and, and I'm constantly feel confronted. The Bible cannot always just be an instrument of encouragement. It also leads us to righteousness, which means there's a tearing apart from unrighteousness. So don't be surprised occasionally that I preach a message that you don't like. You didn't enjoy it. You didn't feel built up by it in some way. You felt confronted in your own heart. Well, that's just part of the scalpel, the word, the two-edged sword, which is able to go in and do the surgery that we all need that eventually leads to life. So the we need to recognize that same thing. Those prophets, those men and women of God are being made perfect as we too are confronted and confront things that need to be confronted and sin needs to be confronted in me and in others. Well, again, as I alluded to early, sometimes they're just people. 
and they had some crisis, some faith crisis, and that's encouraging to me. And then obviously the harshness of the law, which John represented. So John was the kind of the end of the law unto righteousness, if you will, and then righteous, and then, but he died before the atonement was made, as we know. And that's why Jesus would say, up until now, the greatest is John, but he who is, what? Least in the kingdom is greater. Why? Because John died before the atonement was made. I've taught on that extensively at times in the past. But I want to go now real quickly to uh, now Peter's first message and see how he was confrontational, a little bit harsh, the response, preparing their hearts for so that they could see the salvation. And we see the same thing that occurred uh, earlier uh, in Luke chapter 3. So Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's first sermon. Watch how he used this perfectly. He used all the, he was courageous, he didn't bow, he didn't bow down. He was, he was conf confronting, but also loving, and all what? Preparing people's hearts for them to see Jesus. Same thing we have to do, friends and family, and the culture that we, that we live in. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, again, Peter's first sermon, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. His blood is on your hands. Now you say, well, how can we say that? We can't go into the 21st century, maybe here in the Coachella Valley in California, and say, you crucified the Lord. I, was like, I didn't have anything to do with that. I don't even believe in all that stuff. But you can communicate that our Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. Now people can reject that. But that is part of preparation for people's hearts so that they can then see and desire an out. Lord, I, they need, how can we make this thing right? Some will reject it. Some will persecute you. Some will come back to life. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Some people are going to be pierced to the heart. And again, they said to the, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? It's the same thing John happened, right? John preaches kind of a harsh, you guys are at fault, you're responsible, you brood of vipers. And then they said, what, what shall we do? Some did. Some rejected him and wanted to kill him. But some said, well, what shall we do? We get the same thing. So John's heard the same thing. We're going to kill that guy. How are we going to get that guy? How are we going to wipe him out? Others responded to it and said, well, what shall we do? Now Peter preaches the same message in the same power of Elijah and John the Baptist. And their response is, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let each of you now be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you got to realize John didn't have that message yet. He came baptizing and for the repentance of sins, a baptism of repentance. He didn't have the full message of Jesus. Jesus hadn't been killed as the lamb. He hadn't been raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out at Pentecost. So he was great. In fact, the greatest up until then. But now Peter's message, oh, it's much more powerful. It's not just, hey, go, you know, don't take more than you should and be fair and not just acts of repentance, but now believe into the ultimate reconciliation, which believe into Jesus, follow him, and be filled with the Spirit. Be baptized now into Christ. So Peter's message was what? It wasn't, it was more 
full. It was the full picture. John was preparing the heart. Peter now had the full message. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to pave the way for people to be able to see Jesus? Are you willing to step up occasionally and have to appear harsh or kind of not with it or not PC or not, you know, woke is the new expression, you know, or awakened by all the issues of the day? Uh, are, is that the case? Are you willing to move in that place? Maybe where it sound, looks like you're not in lockstep with the culture. We aren't in lockstep with the spirit of our culture. We're not. Now, I've alluded to this a number of times, but I am going to now have my dear friends, Kelly and Kathy, read for you this picture, uh, this portion of scripture where Jesus is very definitive and tells us again about John the Baptist. So Kelly and Kathy, Kelly Dordery and Kathy Valentine, would you please take this away, our dear friends, and read for us Matthew chapter 11, 7 through 15. Hi, I'm Kelly Dordery. And I'm Kathy Valentine. And we've been doing Bible study with Jeff for over a decade. And we've been coming to church at the Red Door since its very beginning. We're full-time desert residents, and we're currently coming to you from our Palm Desert office. And we're very honored today to read the scripture Verse of the day, it's Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Back to you, Pastor Jeff. Can't wait to see you all. Miss you. So here's my question. Thanks, Kelly and Kathy. Here's my question to you this morning. I know that's kind of an odd thing. Violent men take it by force. There is a violence that accompanies entering into the kingdom. It's not just, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll, I'll give that a shot and, and I'll buy a Christian book and put it up on my bookshelf and maybe that'll save me one day. There is a certain violence that happens and there is a certain violence in telling the gospel, in proclaiming the gospel. A violence to people's sense of self, a violence that goes into the heavenlies, realizing that there's spiritual consequences, there's spiritual forces of wickedness holding on people, enslaving people. There is a certain violence that goes in, and I think we need to understand this. We cannot just make this nice social teacup activity where we just kind of mention Jesus and say somebody, oh, that sounds like an interesting guru teacher. Uh, it, the, the, the gospel itself is confrontational and violent people take it by force. 
there t it takes some violence in a sense, not physical violence, but spiritual violence to confront people in their state of sin. And that's essentially what, again, Jesus was saying. Look, the, it couldn't have been more clear. Malachi was prophesying, there's coming the great and terrible day of the Lord. Great for many who are what? Prepared for it. You know, the 10 virgins, some are prepared for Jesus coming back. Others, unfortunately, are not, and when Jesus does return, well, it's going to bring a terrifying expectation of judgment, according to the Bible. Now, in closing, I want to have just give you a, a little bit of insight into a friend that I met this last week. He's part of a Lynx Fellowship at, uh, at Alta Vista in Southern California. It's a guy named Ray Diaz, and I played golf with him through a mutual friend and acquaintance named John Pugh, who's the chairman of the Lynx National Board. And John brought him over, and Ray sent this to me. This is Ray's testimony. Ray had, they had this idea that they wanted to do a fairway testimony. How can I share my faith, share the gospel in such a way? This is a practical application of what we've been talking about. How could I share my gospel in a very quick, share the gospel in a very quick moment, maybe even on the fairway as they were playing golf, with a buddy, how would I share the message and in some way confront someone, even third person, about their own sin? And listen to Ray's fairway testimony. I'm going to read it for you. I had a, He sent it to me this week, of which I was very grateful. Here is Ray's fairway testimony, and then we're going to see, can we pick out some of these kind of confrontational preparation kind of hints that someone would then take away from it. Here's Ray's testimony as we close this morning. Ray says, I was born into a Mexican-American family. <clears throat> Hispanic mom and dad. Spanish was my first language. My mom was a functioning alcoholic, and my family father had issues respecting other people. In other words, I am coming out of chaos. There was a lot of sin in my family and in my life. You can already see it. The defining issue in my life came about before I was born. My mother had an affair with an Irishman while my father was out of town on business. The only thing I know about my biological father is his name and the city they met. I grew up with a lot of shame and insecurity. Okay, can you see that language? Even though he's doing it third person, uh, he is working from a perspective of, there was chaos and, and shame and my heart was dark. And he's saying that in his own, from his own perspective and essentially establishing a controversial, confrontational message. If you're listening to this, the first thing that people would be asking, well, I wonder if I, my heart is dark like that or I, oh, I have shame like that. I come out of a messy background. You know, people can begin to identify. And he goes on. While walking through the events with my mother, one of, uh, one of her attempted solutions, being fluent in Spanish, was to cross the border from San Diego, where she got pregnant with me, to Tijuana for an abortion. This was prior to Roe v. Wade. Because I'm telling this story, the abortion attempt failed. I met a Christian at work, and I started asking him questions. What prepared, what prepared Ray's heart to begin to ask questions, go to a next step? 
the messiness, the darkness of his family's heart, his father's heart, and as a result, his own heart. And you'll see that even more clearly in a minute. So I looked closer at God and the Bible and what I learned really resonated and cut to the heart of the issue. Well, he's gonna describe that. I was created by God and later learned created for God. Today, I know that God created all of us in his image and I understand that he created me uniquely to be me. Christ has forgiven my past mistakes, teaches me how to live today and has a home waiting for me. Until you understand that you were made by God, for God, your life will never make sense. Notice he says, Christ has forgiven my past mistakes. So you can see in this, this beautifully done, just this little fairway testimony, something he could share what? It takes a, a minute to share his little quick testimony. And through that, people feel what well, takes courage to do this. And, and then he's talking to people about his own darkness of heart. He doesn't confront them directly, but as you read his testimony, I think a, a rationally thinking person would be going, well, I, I come out of a mess. I have a dark heart. And he even said he forgave his past mistakes. So he's describing, in a sense, the terribleness of his life and the chaos and the cursedness of his life but then he's giving them an on-ramp to then see that completely obliterated in Jesus. And that's a beautiful way to think about it. So look, we recognize uh, Moses, the Bible's very clear in John chapter one, the law was, came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus. So the law, the ministry of John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah, and even in us, has to be a part of our gospel presentation to prepare people's hearts for what? Well, the message of the Savior who comes in grace and truth. Folks, we do this all with gentleness and compassion, the Bible says, just in case God might you know, lead somebody to understand and see him, but it takes courage in this day. We all want people to like us. We're afraid to be confrontational. Elijah wasn't, John the Baptist clearly wasn't, Peter wasn't, even after the resurrection and the atonement and the outpouring of the Spirit, he was still confrontational. There are moments where we have to confront our culture and we have to do it courageously, but we're doing it so that people might come to a deep understanding of who Jesus is. So I hope this has been helpful for you this morning. Again, this is a, uh, our pro progress through the Gospel of Luke. We'll progress on to chapter four next week and maybe even look a little bit at the latter part of three where John actually baptized Jesus and the significance of that. And, uh, and I hope this is uh, making some roadways in your ability, again, to be a gospel proclaimer in a culture who des that desperately needs the message of Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. For those who desire, Lord, maybe some need to repent. Lord, I've been afraid to confront the culture. I've been afraid to prepare the way for people's hearts. I, I can't even share my testimony. I wouldn't even share what Ray would. I don't even have a fairway testimony. I don't have an elevator testimony. I, Lord, forgive me of that. Give me the courage. Lord, I wanna move in the power and the spirit of Elijah and John the Baptist 
to prepare people's hearts for the message of grace and truth, which is Jesus. Lord, would you help me? Would you allow me not to be fearful of what people may say when I talk about the gods of our culture or maybe even just share the testimony? Lord, I'm asking you to do this in a very significant way in my life. If you prayed that, I just know that God does flood the resources. Just a flood comes your way, and you might find yourself, even this week, with more courage to share your faith than you ever have. Hope this has been helpful. We miss you. We love you, Church at the Red Door. Have a great week.